But for those who are immigrants, for those who may have grown up in countries other than Canada or US, we know that at times there are some darker sides to the places from whence we came. We have to take the things that are beautiful about our heritage. There are also some things that it's okay if we let go. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be behind every single thing you know and start a new life in a foreign country? From my experience, it can be a struggle. On the Newcomers Podcast, I'll be sharing my story as well as the stories of other immigrants. We'll be talking about the joys and struggles of starting afresh. My name is Dozier and I'm looking forward to being your host. Welcome back to the Newcomers Podcast, everyone. Today, I have with me Bolaji. Who's been, he left Nigeria like 1993. That's like, gosh, like that's 500, 5,000 years ago, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, how about Macaulay was my classmate? <laughs> no, no, it's not that bad. But I think like, like, like we were talking during the pre-show, like then we still have Bill Cosby on TV. Yes, no. Bassi and Company and the rest. Bassi and Company. <laughs> You know, gosh, like, I, I I don't even know where to start, but I think the first question I'll ask you is, when you look at moving then and you meet immigrants mm. who move now, like, what do you think mm. is the biggest difference between those, these two periods? Like, someone who moved in 1993, 94, 95, mm-hmm. or the 90s, mm-hmm. and someone who mm-hmm. moves now, like, what's the difference? Like, any difference mm-hmm. at all? You know, you know, so you and me both, yeah, we work in, we work in the area of content, Mm -hmm. we work with storytelling, and just as we're talking now, I'm realizing that um, there are moments in media, as, as a culture, the media we're experiencing at any given time, whether music, movies, television, that almost, it's, it's almost like a time capsule. So I never thought about it until you asked me what year, what year did I leave? And I said 1993. But then I decided to answer it a different way. And I said, Bill Cosby was on TV, uh, Bassi and Company. Let me give you another time capsule. Who remembers this song? Nigeria will survive. Africa <laughs> will don't. survive. My people will survive. This was a commercial on TV in the 90s. And they were featuring a guy, a Nigerian guy, who was leaving Nigeria, going overseas. <laughs> And this lady was singing, begging him. The guy's name was Andrew. She was like, Andrew, no Andrew. check out you. <laughs> Andrew, no check. Andrew was like, say what? <laughs> pe- pe- uh, kids, say what is something we, we used to say back in the day. Don't say it anymore. <laughs> it's very old-fashioned. But, <laughs> but Andrew was a G back then, man. But yeah. So living in 93, 93 was the end of my Form 6. I grew up in Ibadan in Oyo State, I went to the International School of Ibadan. And as I was finishing school, I was fortunate my parents, both of whom are doctors, they used to travel back and forth. You know, a lot of people whose parents were doctors, their parents would go to Saudi Arabia. People used to look for opportunity everywhere. So my parents used to come to the US. And so my, they knew a little bit about the schooling system here. So my dad was like, "Uh, why don't you take the SATs? I'm like, why would I volunteer to go and be doing an extra exam again? 
But as you know, when a Nigerian dad, uh, you know, suggests that you do something, it's not really a suggestion. No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I was, I was voluntold. I was voluntold to do the SAT. So I did the SATs. You know, by God's grace, I performed well, and I earned a scholarship to an American college. And so after I finished my school exams from six, I didn't even wait for the end of the school year. My parents shipped me off to the U.S. immediately. I had no family in the U.S. I was so excited because as a 17-year-old young man, I was ready to leave the house. I was like, man, these rules, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I can't live like this. This is oppression. Ah, how can you be giving me curfew? I'm 17 years old. Imagine, this it sucks. So I was ready to leave home. But as you know, leaving home and going halfway across the world is a different thing. You can't come home to say you want to do laundry or to eat mommy's uh, soup or, you know, when things happen, when problems happen, grown, grown man problems, like your parents are not there to help you. So it was an exciting transition for me and actually maybe a bit traumatic as well. You want to talk a bit about that trauma part? <laughs> this guy, this guy come to do like Oprah Winfrey. One way person, they cry on top couch. Eh? My apologies to the folks who don't speak um, Nigerian pidgin English or vernacular. Yeah. You will learn some today. You know, Dozier and I, we come from different ethnic groups in Nigeria, but, but we're blessed because Nigeria still has a unifying identity. You know yes. what? If we're going to get into colonization and identity and oh man this this let's conversation not, will be three hours today. Let's this conversation will be three hours <laughs> but pigeon english or broken english is one of the the things that unifies us and even though both he and i we speak our native languages um yeah. we, we love to speak pigeon english even with people from other countries in west africa yeah, so anyway yeah, I, I might <laughs> i might indulge every now and then please bear yeah. with us just translate <laughs> translate for your people please so that we can make sure. this a universal experience yeah yeah so let me talk about the trauma when i first got to college right i had no idea about the school all i knew was that it was is it in america yes okay i don't need to answer the rest of the questionnaire i'm there so i showed up on campus i, I took a taxi from the airport got out of the taxi. I had all my luggage. I was excited. Man, I'm a grown man. Let's go. As fate would have it, I attended a historically black college. So in the United States, there are these schools that were established after the abolishment of slavery. Um, our, our white brothers and sisters said, okay, uh, we're not going to force you to do work anymore, but uh, sorry, please, you cannot go to the same school that we're going to. Ah, we're, we're, we're not mates. We're not mates. So they, they actually created schools for African-Americans. Now, these schools were supposed to be separate but equal. This was actually, this was the name of the, the set of laws, separate but equal. However, as we know, while they were separate, the equal part was not quite equal. Despite it, and this is going to be a running theme in our conversation, because I live in America now. I'm, a, I'm an African living in America. So I'm African-American. So our African-American brothers and sisters, they persevered. They excelled. Uh, the school that I went to produced people like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Nice. You might have heard of this gentleman. Rest in peace. So I was walking around. Everybody kind of looked like me on campus. That was nice. 
it was almost like going to Unilag or mm-hmm. University of Ibadan, or University of Unsuka. Like, okay. But but bros, something was missing. Oh, something was missing. I, this <laughs> deal that my father gave me, get K leg. This deal, in other words, it was not as straightforward as I initially thought. It took me like three, four hours, bros. I come to look everybody across campus, say, ah, where the babes now? There were no there are no there are no girls on this campus. My father sent me to an all-boys college. This is Jeez. pretty much equivalent to a four-year prison sentence. Are you kidding? Are you joking? Is this a joke? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Half, <laughs> half, halfway across the world, no babes. Nope. Eh? No sense. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Tra- trauma, this trauma your number one. father know that it was a... Oh, of course, my school. father knew he was a Nigerian father. Is a Nigerian father. When he was giving me all this freedom before, Uncle, me, I was thinking, okay, ah, the guy trusts me. Uh, okay, trust but trust but verify, as Ronald Reagan would say, trust but verify. So Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, it's a historical black college. It's an all male college. They focus on raising and uh, growing leaders of men, right? Mm-hmm. Learning leaders of men. So it turns out right across the parking lot from Morehouse College is Spellman College, which is an all female college Sweet. as well. We thank God. There, there's God. Glory be to God. <laughs> there's God. I survived the first trauma. And as fate would have it, my wife of oh, 20 nice. years, who is African-American, I met her. She, goes to, she went to Spelman College. Sorry. So nice. we, met, we met in college that way. That was, so that was the first the trauma, the first disaster averted. As I began Waka, as I started walking to my dormitory, I walked up to the dormitory. There were a bunch of guys hanging out on the on the front porch. I rolled up. Now, in the 90s, yeah, uh, the style that was popular, this was, let me see some of the music. Uh, Naughty by Nature, Hip Hop Ray, Crisscross, mm-hmm. Jump. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And this was the fashion. So hooded, I had my hooded top t-shirt. Yeah, I had my ankle boots, uh, LA Fitness ankle boots, everything. I rolled up. One of these guys said, hey, man, you know the difference between, uh, you know what cool points are? I was like, uh, cool points. Let me, it doesn't sound familiar. Sorry, Uh, what's cool points? He said, well, you just lost about 20 cool points by wearing that shirt with them shorts. Everybody talks, oh, 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 oh. And black boys can't smoke people. I just I just got off the I literally just got off the plane I don't know I'm the guy with the accent I don't know anybody okay this is trauma number two this is trauma number two so there is this thing about the the whole the immigrant experience when you first arrive there's this term called assimilation yeah and there are certain communities in the US today that for better or worse assimilate less you know when you have a when you have a, a large population and they all move to the same area, whether it's our Chinese brothers and sisters or South Korean or our Indian brother, you know you go to big cities, you often find Chinatown, you know you find Koreatown things like that. So we all kind of sometimes we choose how much we want to assimilate. Sometimes it's forced upon us. So with me not having, I had no anchor. I had nobody from Nigeria. I was just the kid with the accent. Now my accent began like overnight. 
Mm? We all watched American TV growing up now. And at that age, you are still fairly adaptable. I was 16, mm. 17. In fact, let me, let me just be honest with you, my friends. Back when I was in Nigeria, in school, they used to discourage us from speaking vernacular, which is yeah. speaking <laughs> our native language. We want to talk about the insidiousness of colonization. They would discourage, I guess because they wanted us to be so proficient with English, but all of our school was taught in English. Everybody communicated in English. We didn't need this extra fence, but they would say no vernacular. Yeah. So anybody with it blow, we call we call it phone as in phonetics. Anybody with it blow phone, if you if you can speak with an affected British accent or American accent, you are actually respected more. It was yeah. regarded as a, you know, for better or worse. I'm just telling the truth with as no judgment. <laughs> And so I overnight I was like I don't want to stick out. They already blasted me for the cool point. I've already I'm in a cool point deficit, my guy. Let me let me let me water down this accent small. Let me you know I want to blend. Yeah. I want to blend. And so I did my best to blend, but culturally I still I was different, to the point where, even though I was academically an excellent student, in Nigeria, eh. I tell you, the mind is a powerful thing. As my confidence began to slip, Jeez. now my, perform- my academic performance began to slip. And I even want to confess something else that was tied to my academic performance. As I was coming to the US, I, I had it in me. I, used- I had this internal dialogue. I was like, man, college is about to be easy. You know why? Because African-Americans are lazy. Okay. Let's unpack this. Um, did my mother ever tell me that African-Americans are lazy or say any negative? No. Did my father utter any prejudice? No way. And yet somehow I came to this country, I came to America with this belief that somehow as, as an original African, I'm superior. Like, look at all this. This is the land of milk and honey. Dozier. Why are these people not? Why are they still living in the ghetto? Why are they? Why don't they have the best jobs? I'm only saying out loud what a lot of Nigerians yeah. believed then, yeah, and, and still believe today. Yeah. So going to an all-black college, I was like, ah, okay, just hand me my accolades. You know, let the Nigerian is here. <laughs> are you not entertained? The Nigerian is here. Naeem, I was I found I was surrounded by brilliant scholars. The best of the best from around the country. And then you mix in immigrants from Trinidad. We know they play with book. They emphasize academics. Immigrants from Jamaica. Im- and, you know, immigrants from other African countries. Everybody was excellent. My academic performance took a nosedive. Trauma number three. When, when your identity is, oh, that child who, did, who does the chop A, that child who's always getting A's. Yeah. And then you start getting B minus. Eh? You're struggling to even get B. And you know the, you know the sacrifice your parents endured to send yeah. you halfway across the world. How are you going to go back to the land from which you came and tell them you did not excel? My whole self-esteem self-identity, 
was just in pieces. This was the third trauma. How did you deal with all of this? So it's funny, yeah. I was in this uh, engineering program and there was a lady in the, they had an office in the library. This African-American lady, her name, I have to say her name out loud. Her name was Mrs. Dalinda Brown Clark. She had a hyphenated last name. Tall lady, booming voice. This was the mother that I needed for that moment. Anytime I enter that office, office is full of very busy woman. She was coordinating the engineering program across five different colleges. There were five historically black colleges all together next to each other in the Atlanta University Center. Spelman College, Morehouse College. Anytime I enter that office, me, she will stop everybody. Hey, hold, hang on, hang on. Is that, is that Mr. Bulaji? Oh, look at that young man. Brilliant. Mother doctor. Father doctor. Oh, hang on. Let him come through. Let him come through. How you doing, wow. baby? Oh, this kid is brilliant. Oh, he's going place. Damn. Now I go, now I go look left. Eh? <sighs> I go look right. Say, obviously, two Bulajis walked into the engineering office today because I know she's not talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see that. Has she seen my grades? Obviously, it's not me. And this woman single-handedly changed, shifted my paradigm, changed my reality, and made me believe, no, you're actually somebody. You deserve to be here. Even if your hooded top and your ankle boots don't match. Mm -mm. You've earned your place here. And because of her, Rest in peace. I believed. Oh, she again. So damn. Because of her, I believed. Hmm? That was the beginning of the comeback. But one still cannot do it on self-belief alone. Hmm? You know how, even as parents now, Dozie and I are parents, we will tell our children something, and they can believe it to a point, but uh, mommy and daddy are supposed to say that. Yeah, so this yeah. is what this lady was to me. She gave me that first the first leg to the stool that will, okay, this is, we're beginning to build your, your support system. This is the first leg. I needed a peer group. I needed a crew. It didn't happen first semester. Second semester, they said they were, they were going to do something called step show. So part of African-American uh, culture, there's, there's a form of dancing called stepping. A lot yeah, of fraternities yeah, and sororities yes, do that. I yeah. had no idea what this was. I didn't know what it was. But, but back in Niger, one of the ways, I, let me, let me, I was a shy kid, right? I was a shy kid growing up. And so one of the ways that I found to express myself, get small confidence, you know, get, get some attention from the ladies. <laughs> I, 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 I learned one or two dance moves, man. And my mama would go record. She, she, every time she comes to the U.S. when I was in secondary school, she would record television. You know, so comedies like Cosby Show, Roseanne, Saved by the Bell, D Different World, Fresh Prince. But she would also sometimes record music videos. That's how my mom messed around and recorded the music video for MC Hammer, You Can't Touch This. I think this was like in my form three. 
And when I got this, it was on VHS or VHS tape. For those who don't know, go and Google it. <laughs> Google where VHS tape is. Damn, you bring it back to memory. I'm man. saying. So I, I, I watched that VHS tape. You can't touch this for a whole summer. The following year, I went to school. I now went from the Efiko lane. Eh? People who follow those, you know what Efiko is. Someone who's very studious. I went from Efiko lane to, okay, now I'm now one of the cool guys, right? So I knew how to dance a little bit. And when I came to the US and I had lost my voice between losing my accent, losing my identity, everything, they now said, oh, we're doing step show, all the freshman doms, we're going to do step show competition. I said, what's stepping? They said, it's like, it's like dancing. I said, it's like dancing, eh? They said, it's like dancing. Okay, make me so, make I enter, make I join. So we went to do tryouts, right? So at tryouts, just for my each dorm, they will form their own team. I was still so quiet, so shy, because again, I hadn't found my voice. So everybody, they had their cliques, they had their friends, everybody was hanging out, high five, dapping each other up, boom, boom, boom. I was the quiet guy in the corner. And but when they turn on the music now, to me it sounded like it sounded like you can't touch this. Eh? By the end of the session, they're like, man, who's this African guy? Who that man, this African dude can dance, yo? <laughs> level, past yeah. level. Eh? Your level. Le- your eh? did the talking, right? Don't be our don't be our history. Don't be our history. Eh? <laughs> level past We're level. We're all one same, honestly. I found, I found my tribe. That was that was my first tribe. That step team, that dancing group, that was my first tribe. From there, I ended up finding a soccer tribe. I ended up finding computer science tribe when we were building web websites and all this. The, the one, the tribe where they chase babes, we, we found ourselves. We go, go club. <laughs> we always find ourselves somehow. We, always we find <laughs> ourselves. But through it all, college and college slash university is such a special precious time it's not only about the book it's really a journey of self-discovery and so i was taking my first 17 years of life okay this is who i've been up to this point and then i was having all these new experiences meeting all these new people in college and on the other end by the time i was 21 years old i came out on the other end of college yes i was still nigerian yes i was african and an african in america but because of my unique experience going to a historically black college where I not only got to identify as a person with this skin color, but I got to learn the history mm. of people with this skin color. And I think that changed my perspective and my trajectory to the point where when I meet Nigerians now living in America, there are some things that some perspectives they have that are different from mine. To be honest, when all the George Floyd things started happening, even before George Floyd, a few years ago, when police brutality started being documented on social media, eh? me, I hadn't really experienced um, discrimination and racism directly. You know, that one-on-one. And so even though I learned the history, it wasn't that personal to me. But when we started seeing videos of black men being killed by the police, and it was on smartphones. The video would come up on social media. At the time, my family, we were attending a predominantly white church in North Carolina. Lovely, lovely people, lovely church. And so the thing would happen. This is back when everybody was on Facebook. Um, 
Facebook was still cool back then. Trust me. <laughs> the the, the vi- first video will come out one weekend. I will post it on my Facebook. All my black friends will post it. We'll all be lamenting, commiserating, grieving, full of anger, full of confusion. And the people that will console us, the black people will console each other. And then all of my white friends who are not the church-going white friends would also empathize. And all my church-going white friends would be quiet. Okay. Uh, maybe they didn't see the post. Okay, so the next weekend, they are the police. It's almost like a, like a TV show. Oh, it's Saturday. It's time for the next police brutality video. Another Man. video will come out. Another video will come out. Devastation, grief, PTSD, anxiety. Black people going through it will be, you know, comforting each other online. My white friends who are not the church-going people, they will, they will grieve with us. My church-going white friends silence this happened for like it was a summertime period and it happened for like seven weeks in a row where every weekend there was another video and every, every i would go to church and i would sit in the pews waiting okay surely this weekend the pastor i know he saw the video this weekend he didn't see like the last he saw this one he's gonna talk about it he won't talk about it my god i was so after like seven weeks i was so full of rage a, a palpable rage that I've never felt before in my life. And I told my wife, this is the last Sunday I'll come to this church. She said, you can't just leave. At least talk to the pastor. White pastor. And I talked to him and he empathized. Okay, so, you know, you're right. I'm sorry, this one, that one. Okay, we're going to form like a task group of everybody who is concerned about this issue. So, you know, you guys can help us figure it out. I was like, okay. They're willing to do something. Let me let me stick around. I went to the task group. Everybody there was black. I was like, where, where are all the white people? I didn't even know. I didn't even know there were this many black people in the church. <laughs> all of us have complained to the pastor about the same thing. That's when I started to understand the complexity, the depth of not just per- interpersonal racism, not just microaggressions, but systemized. Racism, the one that's baked into the fabric of the nation and that is so difficult to unravel. Unpack. Yeah. Why didn't... I'm telling you, these people who went to church with me were good people. I'm telling you. Our children knew each other. Uh, their children would play at my house. My kids would play at their house. But when it came to the topic of potential racism, every it becomes tribalized. Yeah. It becomes tribalized. And this was back, I think, in the early, I don't, maybe 2005, 2006, maybe like 10, 10, 15 years before George Floyd. (coughs) Excuse me. So, unfortunately, we left that church because I I tried for like a year to try and create some type of movement in the church. People were not willing to move. So, I said at the end of the day, I cannot make other grown people change. I can't make them who who they are not. I have to go and find people who are going to respect me as an equal human being and see my humanity despite the color of my skin. And it should not even be despite. Our skin color is different. We shouldn't say that we don't see color, that I'm colorblind. I mean, it's a, we're it's not stupid. It's the most ridiculous <laughs> statement ever. Like, hey! <laughs> like what is colorblind? Is colorblind? Is it a disorder or something? 
if I see Dozier now, I can tell you from his name, I can tell you from reading about him, speaking with him, we're from different tribes. We're from different ethnic groups. It's okay to acknowledge that. Unfortunately, our ethnic groups, there was a war back in the day. Very ugly part of Nigeria's history. And in fact, if our, if our parents were to talk today, it's likely that eventually some kind of tie back to the yeah. Afran war will eventually sure. come. It's a very uncomfortable part of our history, but it's part of our history. Despite that, despite those differences in ethnicity, some tradition, some culture, I can still see this guy as my brother. I can see him as my friend. I see him as equal to me. Not the same. We're not identical. We're not be twins. Exactly. Yeah. Nobody's uh-huh. identical, actually. You just... <laughs> and it's okay. There are things that Dozier is just amazing. I can already tell, you know, we never met in person. This guy is just good. He's a storyteller. He brings people together. He knows how to synergize disparate pieces of information into a unified, you know? He knows how to draw stories out of you. See all these yarns. Where are the yarn now? All these stories that I'm telling. I didn't intend, I didn't intend to tell all these stories. Eh? You've, you've come again. So he does, he, there are things that are just unique to him that are special. And I'm sure if we ask his wife, there are probably some things that, okay, maybe this guy does not make his bed in the morning. You know, but, you know there are going to be some things that it's okay. We're different, but we can still value each other, right? Yep. Yep. But because of history, like, if you go and talk to two soldiers who fought in the Biafran War, it may be difficult for them to sit down and talk the way Dozier and I are talking. Yeah. I think those who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it. We have to look back in order for us to move forward. I was going to ask you a question around, you know, just considering how the school you went to and how everyone there is like black and everything is mm. you know black so when you now started moving to the workforce what was the transition like was it seamless Ooh. like um what's the opposite of seamless unseamless it was unseamless <laughs> <laughs> it was unseamless in fact the first job so even atlanta georgia is yeah a, the, some people call it chocolate city Mm-hmm. Very, very large population of african-americans so yeah the first job i got was in ohio which is n- the northern part of the u.s first time yeah. i ever experienced real winter it was tough i ended up so this was 97 98 i ended up uh because i was a computer science major i ended up uh building a social network oh for nice. people who went to black colleges because I was so, this was now my second, my second round of homesickness. The first round of homesickness was leaving Nigeria, moving to the U.S. The second round of homesickness was leaving a historically black college and going into the middle of Ohio in the winter. <laughs> I was like, where are my people? That is wild. <laughs> so I built a social network. This is before uh, MySpace, before Friendster, before High Five, before Facebook. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg was probably still in middle school when I built this thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't have the <laughs> network Zuckerberg had. Nobody's making a movie about me. But we built this thing to like 30,000. Me and my wife, she was my girlfriend. 30,000 members. We used to go on uh, Caribbean cruises once a year with hundreds of young black professionals. Ah! See, enjoyments. There's nothing like young black people, we get money. 
Ah, we yeah, like enjoyment. Party. We like party. <laughs> Young black people. I tell you, those cruises, they actually there are some cruise babies. Like some people, okay. I'm 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 giving too much yarns now. Like some people actually <laughs> they started families because of this these cruises. These cruises. But it, it wasn't seamless. And in fact, it was the second time that I was an outsider. The first time I was a Nigerian at a an African American college. The second time I was a black person in corporate America, and I did not know the rules. You see, when we talk of the Nigerian experience, the African experience, the immigrant experience, there is a temptation to simplify. We want to say all Nigerians are the same. Or it's subconscious, right? But Dozier's personality is so different from mine that his newcomer experience, his immigration experience would have been very different from mine. So I'm only telling this story from my standpoint. Because I was an introvert, you know, shy kid, because I was academically advanced. What this did was it allowed me to develop in some areas and neglect other areas. I had IQ. I had not developed EQ. And maybe you can survive in college with high IQ, low EQ. It's difficult to survive in corporate America or corporate Canada or corporate wherever you are. In fact, the inverse probably helps you more. If you have, if you have yeah. average, don't have low IQ, kids. But if you have average IQ, but high emotional intelligence, you'll go yeah, very far in life. I very didn't far. have high yeah. emotional intelligence. And so I will show up eh, every day and just earnestly put my head down, do the work. I didn't cut corners. I worked hard. But was I networking? No. Did I have a mentor? No. Uh-huh. So, um, when, when katakata scatter, in other words, when there's trouble, when something goes wrong, the people who have a mentor, they, it's like they have an umbrella. They will just open that umbrella. Even though it's raining, they don't get wet. But the person that's walking around with no umbrella, when the thunderstorm comes, is going to yeah. get soaked. And I found that over and over, job after job, I wasn't lazy, bros. I didn't cut corners. I didn't cheat anybody. But the moment I make a mistake like this, eh, my head is on the chopping block. Why? Is this every Nigerian's experience? No. But this was my honest experience. And it happened at the first company, two years layoff. It happened at the second company, two years layoff. By the time it happened at the third company, you start saying, okay, uh, maybe it's not them. Maybe it's truly me. Maybe it's truly me. But the problem is these things are complex. It's a combination of things. Yes, it was a combination of me not being emotionally mature enough to build relationships with influential people. It's true. You have to learn how to play the game. How much did race play into it? It's difficult to say. All I can say was that more often than not, I was the other, right? I fit into that category of other because I was so much a minority. So sometimes the inside jokes I won't get. A lot of the guys would bond. They will bond over American football. I never played American football. I didn't watch American football. If we want to talk about super eagles, ah, I'm the first one there. Come on. 
But you're talking about American football. Like, so I was I wasn't in in those inner circles, and so I didn't have that umbrella. And it took me many years to learn how to re- to build that emotionally. The thing is, if you believe in this concept of growth mindset, a fixed mindset says whatever you're born with, whatever skills you're born with, that's that's what you have till you die. A growth mindset says, yes, you're born with certain advantages. The, whichever ones you don't have, you can accumulate them over time. It wasn't until my late 20s that I learned about growth mindsets and I started accumulating skills. People will meet me today. They will say, you introvert, lies. You, you are shy. Never. My wife knows. My children, my children, they will say, Daddy, when we're outside, you're so extra. You're so extra. <laughs> How do you mean? All these, yeah, you've seen all these uh, American slang. You're extra. They'll say, Daddy, you're, you're, too, you're talking too loud. They'll say, Daddy, when you laugh, we can hear you from across the soccer field. Daddy, you're too loud. But I'm still an introvert in that. I, I'm no longer as like, shy like I was. But I'm very much still an introvert, which basically means I get my energy from alone time. I've always been that way, but I built the skills over time, the emotional intelligence skills to relate to people so that now I can go into a room, I can look like an extrovert, I can be extra, but I get expiration date after like <laughs> 90 minutes. My wife knows whenever we go to a party because she's extroverted. After 90 minutes, I have expired. Cinderella has turned into a pumpkin. Do not pass go. Do not collect to... Ghana, eh? we must go. We have to go. <laughs> to the point where my wife and I agreed at the same point, we're going to take separate cars to parties. After you two serious? hours, you go you go home and be happy. Go and watch Netflix and go and read comic books and do all these uh, ethical things. My wife will stay at the party four or five hours and join. She will help them. After the party finishes, she will help them break down, wash dishes, and put the kids to everything. But we understood ourselves. Yeah, very important. Self-awareness is powerful. Very important. Very important. You know, so you've mentioned it. I feel like this question, you probably have talked a bit about it, but um, I would like to just kind of dive a bit deep into it, which is like, in all the things you've talked about, what do you think was your most overwhelming moment? In, like, mm. Mm, wow. You know, there were many. Let me, let me share... Just to illustrate, and I've probably shared a few of them, but let me share a different story uh, to illustrate. The first time I went back to Nigeria was the summer after my freshman year. So at this point, one year into college, you, you know the confidence that I brought to college when I left home? I was like, I'm a, I'm a grown man. Eh? No more curfew. Nobody tell you. can't tell me nothing. And then, and then the experience humbled me, right? But the way teenagers are, and particularly male teenagers, it doesn't take long before the testosterone and the ego kicks back in. So by the time I finished one year and I came back to Nigeria, I, I came with baths. That means, you know, like nice clothes. I came with like all, all my experiences and memories of America. I was like, ah, I've, I'm the man. I've arrived. And when we, when we arrived at my house, the car drove into our compound in Nigeria. Lots of homes have compound like, big fence and everything for security. So we drove into the compound. I jumped out of the car 
and all of the fanciness left my body. All of the grown man, oh, America left my body. And I reverted to being a child again. I ran out. I ran onto the field in front of our house. And I rolled around that field like a dog. I was overjoyed. I was smelling the grass. I was clutching it. I was rubbing the ground. That this is, this is my, this is my land. I'm home. I was laughing hysterically. These are things you don't do outside. I was laughing hysterically in front of my house. Eh, so as fate would have it now, um, there's one, one cute babe from my school. Her mom and my mom were friends. Her mom was visiting the house at, the, at that time. So this lady and my mother were standing on the balcony watching this scene unfold as this now 18-year-old supposed grown man is rolling around like, like a crazy person, laughing. So, of course, by the next day, the story had reached every, like everybody I knew in town had heard this story. So much for uh, cool points. All the cool points I thought I had now. I now know what cool points are. <laughs> Again, the cool points are gone. And this was overwhelming, not in a negative sense, but in a completely humbling sense that, man, there's no place like home. I don't care how big you get. When you go out, when you come back to your village, there's no place like home. You know, digging a bit into that, because I've, I've heard some people say that with immigrants, we always almost feel like we struggle with the concept of home, especially when you've lived mm. outside for a pretty long time. Because mm-hmm. America is not exactly your home. But at the same time, Nigeria at some point stops to exactly be your home because you're not mm. exact. So you're somewhere in the in between in both between. places. You're, you're mm. American... But you're not fully mm-hmm. American. You're mm-hmm. Nigerian, but you're not fully Nigerian. Like, do you yes. ever experience that at all? Do you think yes. that do you agree with that statement? I went, I visited Nigeria this past December, so about five, six months ago. And I had not been back in 15 years, perhaps. Also, this is the first time that my family got to visit. So my wife, my wife is African American. This was her first time visiting Nigeria. I got to experience it through her eyes. My children, two boys, they were 15 and 12, visiting Nigeria for the first time. I experienced it through their eyes. And again, I had been gone for 15 years. So I was full of trepidation as we were going back. It's like, it's like the first time you're bringing a, a boyfriend or girlfriend home, you want them to make a good impression, right? The best impression. I was bringing my family home for the first time. And I wanted Nigeria to be kind to them. I wanted Nigeria to be good to them. And there's so many things that are beautiful, wonderful about Nigeria. The, the hospitality, the fashion, the food, the music, the culture. And there's another side to that coin now. There are all the other things that make Nigeria, Nigeria. And I was like, by God's grace, all those things will disappear for seven days in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I don't want to see Nepal no go carry light in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> traffic, there will be no traffic, but 
But going back home, right? Like, actually, a cousin of mine, a young cousin of mine, was getting married in Lagos. So we spent much of the time in Lagos, which was not my home, but I have cousins there. So that was like a, a pit stop. It was Nigeria, but it was still, I mean, Lagos is like New York. Yeah, Lagos is, Lagos is a different vibe. It's yeah. different, right? <laughs> Uh, for anybody listening who's from Lagos, don't get the big head. You're not any better than you, okay? Let's let's not start that one again. Ibadan eh? boy. Uh-huh. Let's not, uh-uh, Omar Badon, Kini Show, uh-uh, come on. That's, I digress, I digress. So, so we now went to Ibadan. And again, the trepidation, the fear started to bubble up. Is it going to be as good as I remember? Um, will I, will people even see me the same way? Eh? Uh, and I will t- let me take a quick diversion before I come back to my return to Ibadan. I did business school in Atlanta as well, uh, a few years after my undergrad. And as fate would have it, there were about 10 African students who came direct from Africa. Most were Nigerians. So I had been in the U S for maybe 10 years at this point. I was so happy to have real Nigerian classmates again. It was exciting. And we we hit it off right away. But at a certain point, they would tease me about not really being Nigerian. Damn. It was joke, bro. Not jokes now. You know, I I tell my kids today, because they're close in age, and sometimes they get on each other's nerves, they quibble, they fight. And I would tell them that only people who like each other can tease each other. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If if you don't like it, your enemy cannot tease you. They're insulting mm-hmm. you. Yeah, it'll, it'll turn to something else. <laughs> it's a fight. But if it's your friend, if it's your sibling, they can say things that prick you a little bit, but they know it's not too much. So these people, they would tease me about not being really being Nigerian. But you know that when somebody hits a nerve and they don't even know, bros, I snapped. I said, don't you ever in your life Say those words to me again. We were all joking around, though. Having a great time. Until they said I wasn't really Nigerian. And so to relate back to your question, right? I had and I have a foot in both countries. But I'm not, I realize I'm not half American. I'm not half Nigerian. I'm full American. I'm full Nigerian. Don't ever question me otherwise. <laughs> Finish your story about your brother, first of all. Then I'll answer uh-huh. <laughs> so, sorry. Digression. So we came back. Uh, I brought the family to Ibadan. Long story short, we visited the same house where I was rolling on the grass like a dog. I told my kids that story. They love, they love hearing stories about daddy messing up or daddy being, you know, humiliating himself. So I, I, I try and tell them so many stories. The house felt it, like I went to a, my, the room that my little brother and I shared. It felt small. The whole house was almost like, like a museum. There was dust everywhere. Photographs. You know, remember back in the day when we didn't have smartphones and photographs were printed out on paper? Yeah. We, I had photographs from throughout my childhood. Dusty photographs telling all these stories, all these memories I had forgotten. And I was like, man, I lived a whole lifetime in this household. It really was like walking through a museum. And I talked to my uncles, talked to my aunties. 
when I left, you know, I was smaller than them. Now, now I'm a grown up. And sometimes it's difficult, bros, to go back because of like the economic dynamics. When you leave, yeah. you're a child. When you go back, you're an adult and you may have surpassed some of yeah. those people you looked up to economically and the mm. dynamic shifts and it's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's uncomfortable. But these are all parts of, of growing up. So, man, I love my home. I'm blessed beyond measure that I was born in Nigeria, in Ibadan. I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed. And yet, the opportunity that my parents afforded me to come to America and to experience this here, it would be different if I was born in the US. I could, it, it, it's not the same. I could not have this duality that caused me so much strife, that caused me struggle to figure out where do I draw the assimilation line. That struggle when I was younger, it's now a blessing because the struggle has become a strength. I can take the best from the right hand. I can combine it with the best from the left hand. And I can join them and relate to anybody with yeah. any hand. That's We're blessed. We're blessed. That's a good way to look at it, yeah. Because people tend to think of it like, I mean, some people tend to struggle with it, but it's actually a good way to say, Hey, like it's actually a strength, not a negative in itself. Mm. Because what you are is you can choose what you want from both cultures and from live both. with it. We it's, uh, the human condition is that with distance. Somebody told me once they said comedy is tragedy plus time. Mm. For my immigrants in particular, who left some forms of hardship or struggle you will know that a lot of times we end up bonding over those tragedies, those hardships, <laughs> right? With some distance, you can make it funny, you can romanticize yeah. it. But at the end of the day, there were still some things that were not good. I remember seeing as a child, we want to talk about, we've talked about my trauma in the US. In Nigeria, in Ibadan, I saw someone randomly on the street who was being accused of theft. A man, a grown man. A large group of people were walking down the streets. They were beating him. They had stripped him almost naked. Insulting him, beating him. The crowd was getting larger. And I won't share how it ended. But for those who are immigrants, for those who may have grown up in countries other than Canada or U.S., we know that at times there are some darker sides to the places from whence we came. We have to take the things that are beautiful about our heritage. There are also some things that it's okay if we let go. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Thank you so much. <laughs> You are one of the best storytellers I've met in my life. <laughs> Bros, I blame you. I blame you. <laughs> like, this has been really good. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on here. Thank you for just sharing all those stories. Like, I just, I love the fact that you answered almost every question with a story. <laughs> it's a condition. <laughs> What's it called? Story condition or storytelling condition. Story condition. Story, uh, tales by moonlight. Tales by ah, moonlight. Yeah. 
you know i just I wonder want, why they killed that show like i, I wonder don't why know. they killed that show i don't know but I, I will leave you with one last story there was a when i became a father right it was actually in the middle of one of these layoffs and again it had done a number on my self-esteem because mm. i was always a high achiever and i had this young child one year old every night at bedtime i would tell my son stories and one day my wife was sitting outside the bedroom listening and she said you know Maybe you should start to write some of these stories down. Well, I was unemployed at the time, and my self-esteem was in the toilet. So I said, oh, what's the worst that could happen? Naeem, I begin to write these stories. But I grew up reading comic books. So I combined, we've talked about combining cultures. I combined the heritage of comic books. I combined the African heritage of passing along life lessons through story. And I started to write superhero story books about children who suffered. They all suffered from something. Shyness, uh, dyslexia, something that made them feel less than everybody else. And yet they had a superpower that was the opposite of that struggle. And I did it because I wanted to teach my son that your struggle can be your strength if you allow it. The advent of that whole storytelling thing was in a period of trauma, unemployment. I ended up writing 50 books. Africans are storytellers. We live through story. We teach through story. Story is our culture. Just give me a link. Send me a link to those your books once we <laughs> drop this. <laughs> to be honest, for yeah, because sure. I'm very interested in projects like that, but that's not a topic for the podcast. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> for sure, for sure. All right, then. Thank you so much for doing this, man. Like, this has been amazing. Thank you so, so much, Balaji. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing. This this is an archive for not only our yeah. people, but immigrants everywhere. Yeah. yeah. This is a that's time capsule. 50 years from now, they will, this thing will enter Congress of li- uh, the Library of Congress. Yes. <laughs> Keep it going. It has to. Thank you so much, man. Thank you.